everybody, and hello, humans. This is Josh with Not A Robot Podcast Comic Review Show. We've got a number of bonus episodes coming to you to celebrate our 52nd DC Review Show this week, and this is one of them. I would like to welcome to the show the co-host of the Deep Cuts Podcast, creator of quite a few YouTube shorts, and of course, the reason why we have him here today, he's an artist and writer of comic books. You've seen his name on titles like Night Hunters, Action Hospital, Star Trek Voyager 7's Reckoning, The Fuck Off Squad, and if you're daring, maybe even the analytical series that looks at, in the most interesting way, landmark titles The Watchmen and The Dark Knight. Humans, without further ado, I'd like to introduce to you, Dave Baker. Hey, thanks for uh, having, having me on the show. Not a problem. We are really glad to uh, have you here. Dave, we have you here to talk about your new graphic novel, Everyone is Tulip, written by yourself with art from Nicole Go. Goo. What am I close. saying? You were close. You were close. Goo? Goo. Okay. Yeah. All right. Nicole very, Goo. <laughs> very French. Very, very French. I have a hard time with creators' names, man. Oh, boy. But uh, her work we've seen in last year's young adult graphic novel, Shadow of the Batgirl, as well as Ellie Hall, who's on Colors. They uh they do some really good work. I feel like their tone of the art fits the the story that you've got in your book, as it tends to be with the majority of the titles that I've seen you write. Now, before we get into your newest book, I'd like to have you tell us a little bit about who Dave Baker is. Would you care to share a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm originally from Tucson, Arizona. Uh, I moved to California some years ago. And I've been making comics and uh, writing professionally uh, basically ever since. Um, you know, I, I feel like normally I have to go through and give pitches and explain who I am. But you did such a great job of like, he's made all this weird bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, you know, um, everybody has their flavors they prefer. I happen to be into yours. So um, you said you've been doing comic books ever since you moved out to California. What was it that got you interested in comic books? Yeah, um, I, I, yeah, I've been basically making them since I was like around eighteen or so, maybe sixteen. Um, I, but I've been making kind of like DIY bullshit since I was a little kid. Like I, I've always mm -hmm. kind of been that like get the band together, let's do a thing type of person. Like I, I put on weird weird plays with my sisters growing up. We made little movies with our you know, giant 19-pound VHS camcorder thing. Um, <laughs> I had um, one of those as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And, like, I mean, I made custom toys. Uh, you know, I, I've always just been somebody who just kind of, like, likes making things. I'm also kind of antsy, so, like, if if I'm just doing... If I'm not doing anything, I'm like, uh -huh. let's find something to do. I'm that type of person where, like... I remember once a, 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 a Doc Hammer interview where he was talking about, like, I would... I would always rather be doing something with people than trying to just hang out. Like if we wanted to like build a table, that is like my idea of a good times. Like let's all go over to so-and-so's house and try and build a table. And I kind of feel the same way where I, I, I'm constantly starting projects with people and making weird stuff. Um, and nothing comics, wrong with that. Yeah, totally. And, and comics specifically, like I found them very young but I didn't find American comics. I found European stuff. Like uh, the first comic that I ever read was Hergé's Tintin. And it was um, mind-blowing to me. I was just like, oh, 
this is it. This is what I'm like meant to do. It was a religious awakening for me. Um, oh. Yeah. And what it, was and the name of that title again? Tintin or Tintin in, in the Franco-Belgian comics. Uh, it You've probably, have you seen the, the, um, the Spielberg movie from like four or five years ago, the animated movie with the, the boy detective character with the flashlight and the little, little white dog? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. So that, that started as a very famous series of Bonacine. Um And um, for whatever reason, they had them at my local library in Podunk, Tucson, Arizona. And I'm eternally, <laughs> just eternally grateful to whoever the fuck that librarian was um, because it set me on a new course completely. Um, and, uh, you know, from there, I, I kind of went into superhero stuff and then went into kind of more traditional indie stuff like Fanagraphics and Love and Rockets and all that good good jazz. But I, I've always kind of had a, a, an affinity for the medium because it's just so primal. It's so pure. It's, it's the creator's intention manifested visually, which is so funny, like, that Hergé was my first exposure to comics because he was notorious for use. He literally had a factory. Like he had like assistants and, you know, they like churned those things out. And it's so, but it, but, but it, it felt to me like a single person made it um, at that time. Uh, and yeah, I, I basically, you know, I made weird little mini comics and stories with my friends in, in middle school and junior high. And then when I started getting old enough to kind of realize like, oh, I guess I should start trying to do this so I can make money at it. <laughs> and then <laughs> right? I just spent the, the next, you know, decade or so trying to trying to do that and failing a lot. That's how you know you're getting something right. Yeah, I agree. I've always lived by the motto is if it's coming to you easy, it's either not worth doing or you're doing it wrong. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I think that there's there's valuable lessons in failure and also there's a greater sense of perspective, you know, like, you know, you, you listed all of those things I've done at the beginning of the show, which I, I don't take for granted. Like I, I am very thankful and appreciative um, that I've developed a little following, whatever it may be. And then also I've been given chances to do stuff like, you know, the star Wars, star Trek almost said star Wars that I didn't work on star Wars. <laughs> the, Star, the Star Trek, the Star Trek miniseries, or like I wrote an episode of Ben Ten. It's on Cartoon. Oh Network. wow! Yeah. So like, there's uh, all we're these. we're huge fans of Ben Ten here. Me, me too. I when they were like, <laughs> "Do you want to write an episode of this?" I was like, "Uh, yes." <laughs> Heck yeah! Uh, and so it was, you know, it, that stuff I think is more deeply appreciated due to the fact that I've just been kicked in the teeth a thousand times you know yeah it feels like you have a more realistic grasp on the medium of what you want to offer it because you didn't come right out of the gate swinging like that titular character in your book right yeah or even like you know not to be shitty but like there are some hollywood people who come into comics because they think of it as an easy way to try and get something made and sometimes Mm -hmm. they like co-write it with their teenage son and like no shade against anybody, but like, I don't know, maybe that kid should like cut his teeth and like be able to be his own creator on his own and fail before being put in a spotlight like that. It's not really fair to anybody. Yeah. It's not fair to the reader because like, no offense, but bro, you're like fucking 19 and you haven't experienced anything. And it's also not right. fair to the to that person, you know, when you're the you are you already have this massive weight put on your shoulder because you're a celebrity's kid and now you're a celebrity's right. kid who's dealing with the most persnickety 
a precocious, you know, petty audience in the world because, you know, <laughs> yes. those the audiences have very specific things that they're expecting. Now, I'm familiar with that. If you've ever listened to our podcast before, there's quite a few creators that I bump heads with at DC. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a it's a it's part of the industry, right? There's there's people who I think have a real solid bead on producing work that is honest and and reflective of their subjective version of the human experience. And then I I'm v. I completely agree. Um, I was just reading the first couple issues of uh, The Many Deaths of Layla Starr the other day, and I was just like, man, a whole issue narrated by a cigarette? I fucking love this. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and then there's, you know, other people in the industry, and I don't think they're exclusive to any one company. I think that it is. Oh, no, not by just, any. Yeah, yeah, it's just a part of humanity, right? There's going to be people who are either they're not going to have the abilities or they're just going to skate by. And, you know, I always say that comics is a B-plus game. Like, yeah. it, it sucks, but you it's very difficult to spend the time and really make something that is, you know, kind of this, um, an obelisk to your talent and ability. It, that's not what, mm-hmm. unfortunately, in America, that's not what the, the medium requires. It requires you to be an extremely talented person whose B and maybe even C work is, like, still good enough to fool the average person. Exactly. <laughs> so many creators that are getting paid out the wazoo come to mind, but I'm not going to start tearing into them. I'll save those for the dump list. But even even so, like those creators that are phoning it in that are getting paid a lot, they should still be getting paid like five times more. Like page rates in comics haven't increased since the like mid 70s. Oh, and no. It's yeah. Bullshit. It really is. It really is, especially when you have creators out there that are given whole universes to shape not just a title or a character but and and they're still not making the money that they should you'll you'll see all kinds of characters that have to constantly churn out books their names will be on three of them from one of the major publishers and then you see them pushing out four independent titles jeff lemire comes to mind although i bet you he's doing much better after the sweet tooth uh tv show but Uh, would you say that RJ would be your specific influence that got you into comic books, or was it just generally the medium after you became interested? Yeah, I think it's probably a little bit of both. Um, I'm a pretty autodidactic person, so once I discovered that there was a thing called comics, I just like became ravenous, and I've you know I've read a ton of stuff, and I've worked at two different comic book stores, and then I worked at a a mainstream bookstore. Remember Borders? Remember that shit? Yes, I do. Of <laughs> <Yeah>. course I do. <laughs> R.I.P. Borders. Yeah, hey, they had some damn good coffee in that joint. Yeah, I I, <laughs> I, I loved working at Borders. Um, but I've always kind of been like a reader, you know, uh, uh, somebody who enjoys learning. Um, uh, and, and so, yeah, I, I think Hergé was the person who showed me what the medium could be. And then from there, like, the list is endless. You know, I feel like I find new people every year that I'm just like, fuck, I never would have made comics like you. And I'm so ecstatic that you are making your version of what the medium means. Like the, like Jillian Tamaki, I think is a perfect example. She's, Mm -hmm. she's, I think probably the, the barring maybe Katsuhiro Otomo. uh, I think she's like the greatest living illustrator. I think her range and verisimilitude and, draftsmanship and analytical thought and 
approach to the medium is just she makes the rest of us look like idiots, uh, <laughs> which is what I want. I, I feel the same way about Jorge Jimenez. He's oh, just yeah. Uh, yeah, that guy spits out like masterpieces in 15 minutes and it's totally. mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that there's but I think that's something that there's you know, there's not a lot of academia surrounding comics. There's not right. a lot of critical thought you know there are some places that really try and dive into it but the audience for it is very small because there aren't a lot of people doing it so it's chicken and the egg thing right like there's not right. a people there's not a lot of people looking for it because there's not a lot of people doing it there's not a lot of people mm-hmm. doing it because there's not a lot of people looking for it and yep. so the ones that are there are rather quite expensive like master classes from neil gaiman sure yeah <laughs> and even that like i'm not dismissing neil gaiman's ability obviously he's a great writer but he's also not someone who has dedicated his life to the medium of comics. You That's know what I mean? That's very true. Like, mm-hmm. I think he, I think Sandman is great. I think there's a lot of great ideas in there. Um, and I think that there, especially for the time, were a lot of interesting formal ideas and comics mechanics ideas in there. Um, but also, I think comics is a collaborative thing. And people refer to it as Neil Gaiman's Sandman. And it's like, I don't know, man. Sam Keith, like started that shit chris bacolo like you've got an all-star list of artists it's not very very good point yep Um, and you know what so many so many media outlets so many podcast review shows i have seen it numerous times where the artist and the the rest of the creative team are just left right off of yeah it's fucking bullshit that's unfortunate it really is because the art is 50 percent of that presentation no matter how you cut it yeah, I, I completely agree. Like, I don't think that people understand necessarily because of the lack of academia what a comic script looks like. Like, a comic script is is nothing but a blueprint. And if you right. gave that blueprint to 15 different people, you'd get 15 different things. Like, that's kind of why we made those Dark Knight uh, Returns and Watchmen kind of parody books. We made, for anybody who's not aware, me and a bunch of my friends all made... Uh, some books called Shitty Watchmen and Shitty Dark Knight, where yes. <laughs> we we took those books and redrew them page for page, panel for panel, but just really poorly. Because, you know, sh- shitty drawings are funny, but also we did it with the specific intention of reverse engineering the idea that drawing in a nine panel grid is very difficult. And nobody really talks about that because humans are binocular. We have two eyes that are set horizontally. We like horizontal compositions. Even right now, we're talking over Zoom, and it's a horizontal composition. It's not framed like a phone vertically. Right. And that's that that simple composition idea or compositional device of like, oh, okay, so there's nine panels on this page, which means each one of these panels is going to be flipped on its head the reverse way that we would want to look at something. And then I have to make a composition that is structurally sound and I can look at as an individual image and I know what's happening in it and I have to do it on like a three inch by four inch uh, piece of paper. That's Mm -hmm. insanely difficult. And everyone again says, oh, Alan Moore, he's the wizard. He came up with all these ideas. And it's like, yeah, but he didn't draw them. (laughs) He didn't draw them. And there's so much of that book that formally comes from Dave Gibbons. Like, yes. like the idea of the Hiroshima lovers, the silhouettes, you know, where mm-hmm. uh, all of that stuff is from Dave Gibbons. The, the first panel where like you're looking out um, 
you're looking out over the, the balcony of the comedian's apartment and mm-hmm. you see Rorschach walking by as the camera zooms out. The first three panels are connected, but the long side of the page also is kind of passively compositionally connected as well, which I don't think anybody ever talks about because it's they just assume that like, oh, yeah, Alan Moore is a genius. He writes these really laboriously complex scripts. And so that makes him the visionary behind it. It's like, ah, I don't think that's an Alan Moore idea. That seems like a Dave Gibbons idea to me. Um, Because of the way that it's presented. Completely. 100%. You know, there are some compositional ideas that I think are Alan Moore ideas. Like there's, you know, one of the recurring visual motifs in Watchmen is this idea of a a clock ticking down to midnight, you know, and we're currently, you know, I don't think that that is as in the zeitgeist or people might not be aware, but there is a thing called the the midnight clock, right? Or the atomic clock where there's a, I think it's in Zurich, maybe, I don't know where it is, somewhere in Europe where there's a group of people that assess the global intercontinental nuclear feud, this idea of mutually assured destruction, and they have a clock that represents where we are globally in our potential doomsday scenario because everyone now has nuclear weapons. And in the 80s, whenever that clock would move, that was like a societal thing. Like, oh my God, we're 12 minutes to midnight? We're 10 minutes to midnight? We're nine minutes to midnight? Oh my God, this is bad. Right. That idea is represented in multiple ways in Watchmen. You know, there's the uh, the composition of the smiley composition of the smiley face has a blood mark at the the quarter to midnight mark um mm-hmm. the there's always clocks that are in the book that are slowly ticking down and then at the end of the book spoiler alert if you haven't read watchmen um <laughs> there's a there's a scene where one of the characters permanently prevents nuclear holocaust and he walks out into a hallway and he yells i did it and he throws his arms up in the air like this but it's a flat composition where he's the archway is forming the shape of a clock and his arms are forming the 12 minutes to midnight as ever as a symbol of like everything has stopped now. And that right. is not that's not something I noticed when I read the book uh, perfectly transparent. Like I did not get that symbolism, but in drawing it like really bad, just recreating the composition, almost reverse engineering a thumbnail. I was like, oh, my God. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah, right. There is a lot of hidden symbology in there. Um, and, you know, several other books. Uh, I feel like Frank Miller is seriously guilty of that as as well. I think much like much like myself, you tend to be rather opinionated. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not just, you know, life in general, but as as a comic fan, other than destructuring the the works of the dark knight and, and watchmen how do you feel about those particular titles what what do those titles because they're such huge landmark titles and when i speak out against the dark knight because i i like frank miller's work everywhere besides that title hmm, so i i'm i'm just and i'm a i'm probably i call myself the world's biggest batman fan but huge batman fans everywhere say that and I still can't get behind the Dark Knight. So where where do you land as far as those kind of landmark titles? Um, I think it's in a modern context, it's very difficult to evaluate those books without taking into context where they were when they were, were released and the effect that they've had after. Um, <laughs> my perspective on them is I 
deeply appreciate both of them because they were big swings with formalist intent. And that, that to yes. me is like, even if the book is bad, I'm like, noble failure, ho. Oh, <laughs> I couldn't agree more. If uh, I don't like this, I really don't like the story. I don't like the art that you see in the Dark Knight or the subsequent books. However, what it offered to the medium itself, as well as Watchmen, it was it was medium changing. It, it yeah. was a complete revolution of what we were able to see in comic books. And I feel as though the indie scene with all of the up and comers that are coming out now, they have become the new Frank Millers mm. because we're broaching as far as far. I say we, I I've never had anything even accepted by a publisher before, <laughs> but ind- independent artists, uh, I, I feel like that's where, that's where we're getting uh, societal messages pushed now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, part of that too is because like, the big two disincentivize people from putting their heart and soul into the work because a they literally don't own it and b unlike many other industries where there are large corporations that work with people nobody gets any residuals for you know if their work gets you know put into another medium there's no there's no incentive to create other than just the pure desire to like see a vision through um because there's no unions in comics. Like a lot of people talk about like, well, they work for hire. That that's that they signed away their rights. It's like you don't understand the history of how unions work. The entire film industry is all work for hire. And yet every director gets residuals on their movie. Every actor gets residuals when their face is used in something. Every writer gets residuals when their DVD of the film is sold in a Malaysian back alley market or whatever. But in, right. but in comics, because there is no union. And because everything is so decentralized, that's just for better or for worse is not the way that it is. Not even for better, just for worse or for worse is just not a thing that happens. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's very unfortunate. You're right. In other media forms, you can hit that note. Let's let's use a uh, one hit wonder band, for example, that just blows up. You could ride that success out forever. Look at Hanson. Hanson is loaded. They've had one chart topping song. And they've still got money. Question mark and the Mysterians. Fucking, <laughs> you know, all of these bands from the 60s and 70s, the zombies, fucking, uh, you know, there's just, there's so, Animals, yeah. Totally, animals, yeah. There's so many bands that have made a living off of that one song because, and that, that industry is fucked. Like, hey, the, yeah, you can say that again. The comics industry was founded by gangsters, but at a certain point, those gangsters died off and left. The mm. music industry is still run by gangsters. Like, oh yeah, fuck that, dude. That is not. <laughs> I'm trying to go here. I got enough problems just trying to keep my rights in comics, let alone be swindled out of something because they own the masters, which was a contract term used for when they had a literal master vinyl that they would have as the pristine version of the recording. And now it's like those. The idea of a master doesn't even make any sense because everything is done digitally. Like it, it's so just inane and and horrible. It treats treats the the artist like like dog shit. I see where you're coming from there. Yeah, it's bullshit. But it, going back to Dark Knight and Watchmen, uh, I like both of them a lot. But I am eternally depressed by how no one took the lessons. Well, from my perspective, the right lessons from those works 
the reason why Watchmen is so great, the reason why Dark Knight is so great is because they're true to the characters, right? One is a, a formalist deconstruction of them and the other of, of tropes within the medium. And the other is mm-hmm. a character deconstruction um, in examining what a person that was going through all of these outlandish things would be like as a real person. And that brevity and gravity and grim, dark approach has just, that's the thing everybody took, not, hey, maybe we should try more formalist stuff. So if Watchmen was a, a nine-panel grid and Dark Knight was a 16-panel grid, maybe let's try and do some like weird 12-panel grid comic or or a, <laughs> a comic that has no panels or, you know, this, that none of that conversation is there. It's just like the most basic logline version of why it succeeded is mm-hmm. what everyone has been mimicking for the past 30 years and then you get Roy <laughs> Roy Harper beating to death a, a drug addict in a in a, a an alley with a dead cat like what is that <laughs> I don't know that's a good question the uh, here just a couple months ago we saw Ghostmaker shooting bad guys with a uh, with laser eye with laser beams coming out of a tiger's head. Some of this stuff is just it's it's way out there, and there doesn't it's it. I feel like it's more shock value, and they you're right, they didn't take away the the correct lessons. What do you make of the uh, stepping outside the boundaries of the the nine panel the the twelve panel comic and? Something that I've noticed more is artists making use of the white space that is in there. Maybe you'll see four panels around there and then a scene depicted within the white space of those four panels Mm. or even, um, well, most recently in Jin Lun Yang's Batman Superman comic book. That has a total different art style and the entire thing has a backsplash to it there's always a background but the majority of the story is taking place in a film strip that we can see how do you feel about the new expressions of those kinds of art versus the traditional 9 to 12 panel comic book we're used to seeing yeah I mean I think there's so much really cool vital work being produced right now and quite frankly I don't think much of it is happening in the big two space um, no, I, I do not like it. Yeah, I mean, I, I and that's nothing against anybody that's working in that space because fuck it, man, get your money, pay rent. Um, but Absolutely. no, I, I think there's much more interesting work being done in the book market. Um, Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me by Rosemary Valero O'Connell and Mariko Tamaki is great. Um, mm-hmm. There's lots of work coming out from, you know, Fan Graphics, Drawn and Quarterly, Naya, uh, 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 Floating World, um, you know, these these kind of silver sprocket, Pinky and Pepper Forever is amazing. Um, yeah, it is. Your Black Friend is amazing. Um, I'm still I'm still saying it. Ben Ben Passmore got robbed for that fucking Eisner. The Eisners are racist yeah. as fuck. Um, you can say that again. I mean, I'm, they're literally I'm not afraid to do it. No, yeah, they're literally named after a guy who like drew one of the most prominent Sambo characters in comics history and has never apologized. Like it's really, really weird that the Oscars of comics is named after Will fucking Eisner. Like, I get it. I understand why he was important to the medium. But, like, you could argue that Wally Wood was just as important, you know? Like, Absolutely. Because, and I think a lot of people don't know that the Eisners were originally named the Kirbys. Um, they were originally named the Kirbys, and they were sponsored by Fanagraphics. And to make a long story short, there was a bunch of 
falling out. One of the guys behind the scenes who was spearheading the Kirby's, this dude, Dave Ulbrich, who left Fanagraphics and went to Malibu in the mid 90s and kind of spearheaded and helped the formation of Image. And he was like, oh, let's keep doing the Kirby's. And Fanagraphics was like, ah, no, that's our award show. Fuck you. Uh, And big public beef, public beef, public beef. Kirby eventually calls Dave Ulbrich and goes, look, man, I love that you guys want to have the award show named after me, but I, I don't want this bad blood reflective of me. So either you guys can squash the beef or you got to find something else. And Dave Ulbrich and Fanagraphics couldn't come to agreement. So Dave Ulbrich went to Eisner and was like, can I do an award show with your name on it? And that's how it ended up at San Diego Comic-Con as a nonprofit because Eisner wanted it to be a nonprofit organization. It was not connected with a publisher in any way. Um, and I don't know. Oh, that that's a good basis for an award show nonprofit. I love I love that. Yeah. But you're right. Uh, naming it after somebody, I feel as though that's one giant. How do I want to phrase that? If, if, to, if that would have come out today, he'd be canceled immediately. So many people are canceled from things that they do 10, 15 years ago. James Gunn was fired for one random tweet that he made that was, you know, admittedly in very, very poor taste, but he he was canceled for one tweet. Eisner has done much worse than James Gunn, and yeah, he's totally. still celebrated. Yeah, and like, I don't even, I'm not even saying that, like, I think Eisner is as bad or as deplorable as other people in the medium who have objectively made in poor taste work. Um, I think there's mm-hmm. there's probably, you know, some Kirby work that also isn't, you know, hasn't aged that well. Um, but of those guys, and this is just me, and maybe I'm speaking from a place of privilege, um, but to me, Jack Kirby, of those guys from that era, is unquestionably the creator in the maybe in the history of North America like and you look at what he did with Black Panther you look at what he did with um you know all of these characters that are still being be- that are still beloved and the new gods the new gods Commandy Devil Dinosaur the Demon the Fantastic Four the X-Men Thor Incredible Hulk like it's just there's just no comparison to anyone else and i happen to feel the same way yeah it's just not even a conversation and anyone who says that the preeminent award show for our medium should be named after anyone else especially someone with a weird kind of murky track record regarding race (laughs) like eisner i don't know if i'm listening to any more of their opinions but that's just me (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I completely understand where you're coming from. It would be like voting for, don't anybody hate me for this, but it would be like suggesting Donald Trump should win a humanitarian award. It's absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I love the hyperbole. <laughs> I love the hyperbole. I don't know if, if Eisner is that bad. I just well, think that I mean, he's got, yeah, I think he's just got, he's got stuff in his closet that he never rectified. And I think he contributed immensely to our medium. I think he was a oh, luminary. Yeah. I think he also low-key ran a sweatshop that fucked over like shitloads of cartoonists. Like the Eisner Iger studio was the main literal sweatshop yeah. where almost the entire like 
40s uh, medium was produced. You know, there was like mm-hmm. a couple other shops, but the Eisner Iger studio was the main one. There's a reason why Will Eisner is the only one that owns his character from that time period, because he's the one who was fucking everybody over. And like nobody <laughs> talks about that because it's like, well, Eisner, the spirit fucking contract with God. He created the graphic novel. Did he create the graphic novel? I feel like like Don uh, McGregor and all those other guys in the go. 70s were like doing in air quotes original graphic novels. Like, I don't know. But maybe maybe I'm just too close to it. I, I don't know. I, and also, I want this to be clear that I do love Eisner's work. Like comics and sequential art is a definitive book. Contract with God, while being a little saccharine, is an interesting formalist exercise of ditching his previous obsession with filmic language and introducing a theatricality mm-hmm. and like a presidium arch almost to his narratives. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's it speaks very highly of someone who can step away from the medium for 30 years and then come back as an objective old man. Like he was not a young dude when he was making all of those, you know, slice of life New York stories. Um I personally don't find very many of them to be transcendent. They kind of are what go. they are. But I love that he was doing that on a very high level and really helped push the medium in new directions. Um, I just don't think that anybody has conversations about him in ways that are dynamic. It's always either fuck that guy because he's a racist <laughs> Which was like, it's like two people having that conversation. It's like me. It's like me and myself <laughs> talking to a mirror having that conversation. And like <laughs> the other side of things where it's like, oh, but the, the fucking, the spirit is so good. It's like, yes, it is good. Um, but you know, there's there's also like just objective racist imagery in it. And we're just not going to talk about that at all. Like, all right, I guess. Well, See, I'm parallel. Maybe I shouldn't have paralleled that to Donald Trump, but let's go ahead and push that on Disney. Mm-hmm. Steamboat Willie in that era of cartoons are absolutely horrible mm-hmm. and probably should be yanked. Why is it that they're available on Disney Plus with a warning in front of them? Now, that I'll never understand, but we, we, we should be talking about those things. And unfortunately, we're not. Yeah. And, and that's mostly, and that's not even because I think that there is a lack of, uh, opinion about it i just think there's a lack of knowledge like i don't think that anybody that's under the age of i don't know 50 like gives a shit about the spirit because he doesn't he's not in our culture you know like it'd be one Mm -hmm. thing if that frank miller movie had like succeeded and you know what would have happened the week after that movie if that movie made a hundred million dollars there would have been an io9 article and a fucking collider article that's like <laughs> the complicated legacy of William Eisen eyes. Like, you know <laughs> yeah. that shit would have happened. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but we don't have to keep talking about Will Eisner. I I just Hey, I am more than familiar with getting on a tangent, so yeah. don't feel bad. And I, and these are, should... the com- these are the conversations I love to have, like these like tough how do you reconcile this? You know, can you separate the art from the artist? Is his work so influential that his other, the other side of him should be not given a pass, but acknowledged and then put aside in the favor of the evolution of what I personally consider to be the the greatest medium in the history of mankind? Um, Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. There's something about being able to, for example... Uh, I don't get worked up from movies. Tears don't come to my eyes 
I rarely react to a jump scare on something that I'm watching. However, in the uh, recent Green Arrow 80th anniversary issue, there was a small story in tribute to Denny O'Neill in the back called Tap, Tap, Tap. Yeah, I, and, I saw that, yeah. Did, and there were no words that were used in that entire book. It wasn't about a comic book character. It wasn't done overly sappy. It was just a few pages long. But I bawled my damn eyes out at that thing because of how how much you could tell the feeling that went into that story. And I, I feel like music, art, movies, films, I feel like they used to do that for us, but they no longer do because it's all about shock value. It's all about poppiness. It's all about what's going to sell for the next two weeks. But that's not going on, especially in the independent labels with comic books. I think they're the last one true medium that hasn't been affected by society as a whole. Yeah, I think um, I think there are very tangible strides being made that are concrete and exciting. And I think there is an undercurrent of rot and unfortunate <laughs> corruption that is also in comics that exists in every medium, you know, explicitly commercial works, which doesn't even make them bad. But in comics, it's just so much more transparent when something is overtly commercial. Um, yeah. And it, it, it it just is what it is. Um, that work you get oversaturation of characters, yeah, and, and sure. we lose out on other things. Just using Batman as an example, Batman can be in eighteen different titles, but you've got great side side characters in in the Batman verse that are completely ignored, like Huntress and Bluebird, etc. There's there's background characters that are great characters, but because there's not some movie franchise or some commercial tie into it they're not going to invest the money to tell that story if you handed that character over to an independent person they could blow that up yeah completely and i and i think also you know the in some ways like that isn't even necessarily what i'm talking about when i say like overtly commercial because dc comics has been publishing the same fucking five stories since the 1940s (laughs) and that's fine like i like those stories so it's cool that's that's not even what i mean i mean like Companies that are explicitly set up to leverage intellectual property into film and TV deals, you know, like, okay. like, like Berserker is a perfect example. Um, I have no ill will towards anyone that worked on that book. I have no ill will towards Keanu Reeves as a person. I think he probably is completely unaware of all of this shit. And for people who don't know, Berserker is a book that Boom Studios put out written by Matt Kent. And in air quotes, co-written by Keanu Reeves. Um, and it's it's purely an attempt at getting a movie deal set up where Keanu Reeves could star as an immortal Viking who loves killing dude bros or whatever. Like, I want to see that movie. That sounds cool. But the issue is that because there's no unions in comics, people don't get protected. If the way, the way that I understand the process going and... Maybe I'm wrong, but in the interviews that I've seen, the way I understand the project is they developed this idea. They took it to Keanu Reeves. He sat in a couple Zoom meetings, made some suggestions, and then they put his name on it as a co-writer in order to leverage his immense popularity, which is well-earned. He's a great performer, seems like a really genuine guy. And they but, we his- get, 
we get we go back to it's another another example of coattails completely and it is they launched a kickstarter it made a million dollars they made the book and the book was successful i think it sold like 615,000 copies of number 1 when it, the week it came out in the direct market and that's not counting the kickstarter sales but in a, in the movie industry if that would never happen because you can't give there's a there's a writing arbitration board that awards filmmaking credits to the specific screenwriters and uh you know there's a mathematical percentage system you know where you only get a writer's credit if you introduce x number of new characters if you have contribute x number of elements to the plot if you contribute you know rewrote the dialogue more than 30 or 40 percent you know all of these things like i'm making up those specific numbers but like right. there is a codified rule sheet that you have to pass so that you can't just credit oh look development executive you know john 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 said well maybe this guy should be a green skin alien instead of a blue skinned alien and then he asks for a writer's credit and a residuals check on the project and all of these things <laughs> in yeah. comics there's no one to stop that from happening because there's no union to protect people so you have companies leveraging these situations where they have entities from outside of comics coming in in order to generate awareness and hype over a, a brand an intellectual property it's something they can mine for money and Look, I'm not going to lie. I haven't read Berserker and I don't plan on it because uh, it's, <laughs> it, I know too much. I've, I know how the sausage is made. It could right. be a great comic. But what I can tell you is I've read enough shitty IP farm corporate comics to know that they are bad for comics and they are not good. Even if the person is, you know, swinging for the fences, the fact that you are aware that the thing is going to is an attempting to be adapted means you're only going to use a spectrum of the comics language and you're going to be, you know, making work that is attempting to not be the greatest comic it can ever be, but be the best pitch deck for Milo Ventimiglia's production company, you know? <laughs> Named that Ventimiglia. <laughs> Would you say that that is more than just soaking the industry and commercialism and would would you say that it's stealing from the the art that is creating comic books? I think it's depressing because with every passing day, um, direct market publishers are backing themselves and everyone else into a smaller and smaller and smaller corner because the realities of the situation are that the only way to make money in the direct market, It's this is a different conversation for the book market or even web comics or self-published work. Just I'm specifically just talking about the direct market. Right. There's so many publishers that have these 50-50 deals. Like, I don't think most people understand that when a comic says creator-owned on it, nine times out of ten, it is in the direct market. It is the writer owns 25%, the artist owns 25%, and the company owns 50%. And they have decision-making ability. They can choose to accept a deal or not accept a deal or hold out for something better or not. And they're not lobbying for creators to have money. They're lobbying, lobbying for the thing to get made, for there to be the least, you know, the path of least resistance, for them to really try and, you know, produce an object that can be leveraged. And um, yeah, I don't think that's good for cartoonists and I don't think that's good for comics. Um, and I think the direct market is, you know, shambling towards a very dark uh, path. Uh, 
and it has been on that path for a long time. So we'll yes. see if if it collapses or if it has a, a rude awakening and is able to provide deals for people that that can um, entice exciting creators into those pools. Because that's why everybody's going to the book market. That's why everybody's going to Fantagraphics and these kind of smaller independent publishers where, you know, you have um, Simon Hanselman and, um, oh God, what's the name of that book? Uh, Cy- Cyclopedia, whatever. The, it's the Instagram comic where about um, Cyclopses. Um, and it is, uh, you know, it's she's got like 200,000 followers on Instagram who all love this comic and are going to buy it when it comes out. Like all of that stuff, um, you know, that's where the exciting things are happening. Not, you know, uh, the Wrapped comics. Wrapped up in a big publisher. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not even in a big publisher because there are some cool things happening at big publishers. You know, like I think fucking Daniel Warren Johnson's a genius and everything he makes is amazing. But He's... for every Daniel Warren Johnson, there's like a bunch of other fuck bros that are not Daniel <laughs> Warren Johnson. That's very true. That's very true. I, uh, I'm i a big, huge fan of... Uh, uh, Jeff Lemire, as I mentioned before, I feel like he's he's brought so much. And when when I see work done by him, if somebody just tells me that I've missed a title by Lemire, I'll go out and pick it up because I know it's going to be good. It doesn't matter what the art team is. I, I know it's going to be good because he's going to make sure that the art style is fitting the story. He pulls together a collective, a collective group of people that always produce a good thing like Daniel Warren Johnson does as well. Um, and then well, I was about to go off on a tangent about how artists or about how creators actually ride their own coattails. Uh, how do you feel about, uh, well, let's say Brian Michael Bendis, for example. Brian Michael Bendis had an amazing uh, handle on introducing Miles Morales as Spider-Man. He did a great run on Daredevil. But now that he's at DC, it seems as though he's just churning out the same story every single month. We're not getting anywhere in two years. And I feel as though he's personally writing his own coattails from 15 years ago. Mm. You think that you're seeing that a lot in the comics from big names? Yeah, that's an interesting conversation. I think Bendis, Bendis is somebody to me who he has such an interesting voice that even when it doesn't really fit the character, like, I'm not going to lie, Wolverine saying someone's being a Yenta, like, I, I, I don't know. Saying somebody has chutzpah, I'm like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> the Canadian, like, murder machine with knives in his hands is going to say that. But whatever. Maybe I don't, he, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. He recently had Batman turn to a character he created, Naomi, who was having an anxiety attack, and he told her to sing DuckTales. I mean, you know. Maybe that's something that Bruce Wayne is aware of. I don't know. The sliding DC <laughs> timeline. I, I don't know. But, I suppose it's possible. Yeah. But, I, uh, I, I think I would just say that Bendis is someone who, even on his off days, I would much rather read a kind of mid-tier Bendis effort than a lot of journeyman writers' best work. Just because, honestly, like a lot of them, they there's a there's a real big problem in comics of people who want to break into comics because they're huge fans of comics and don't have life experience or a voice outside of comics. And so now you're in like 
the 75th generation of, you know, the person who wanted to be Grant Morrison and then, and then Grant Morrison, you know, in air quotes, fathered Gerard Way and then Gerard Way fathered this guy and this guy fathered that guy. And now we're at, like, it's just like a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox. And it it's really weird to me. Um, but, you know, uh, I think part of that is like you get work because you have a recognizable thing. And if an editor is like, oh, you're a Grant Morrison type. All right, fine. Fuck it. Then you can leverage that into work. And I don't I don't, you know, uh, think ill of anybody for trying to do that. It's just Bendis, for better or for worse, is his own person, even when it doesn't really fit the, the material. It's still interesting to me that he's trying to refine this almost like Woody Allen-esque like obsession with pitter-patter dialogue, mammoth influence, big double-page spreads that are just character moments. Like that, those ideas are interesting. Have I seen those mm-hmm. ideas from him before? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, I had mentioned about how uh, Jeff Lemire pulls together a collective group of a, a, a great team. Every time he's going to put out a title, it it's going to match. And I happen to think that you've done that as well. Mm. Your, your, your group of artists and your co-creators in your circle, you've even credited, uh, I forget the title, forgive me, but, uh, it's, te- it's credited Dave Baker and friends. And I think that, and friends is really working out for you. I love the way that those things are produced. The art style that we see in each of your titles can vary as much as the voices for each of your characters. And that's something I'll harp on. I don't care if I'm the biggest fan of a of a of a OGN or a a character. Period. If if we're having some sort of a group ensemble or there's five people talking and they all sound the same, I'll put the book down. I don't care how interested I was in it, and I don't see that at all happening in yours. Thank you. So all that all that it's it's a big huge thing in comics for me. So I said all that to ask this. We've got a lot of documentaries, the Marvel one. We hear about the Marvel method. We see Dan Slott on Twitter defending himself. We've heard a lot about the creative process. If you're into comic books, you've been looking into this as well. Sometimes they leave the interpretation of the art to the artist. Sometimes they leave the actual dialogue to the letterer. More still can, they'll nail down a script where everything is laid out and the human torch needs to have his hand up or the spirit is looking down to his left-hand side. What's the creative process that goes into your books? Well, I would say first, uh, it's trying to figure out what the best version of the thing that the artist does is and then tailoring the story to that. Um, like, you know, I did this book, Night Hunters, with Alexis Zirit, who's, you know, a, a, a luminary. I think he's fucking outstanding he's a really really good artist and i wanted to one up the works that he had done before you know tarantula space riders space riders two and three uh and and a bunch of other stuff and i was like this dude he needs a really solid story with good character work that allows him space to do his thing and we could really have something special here so, you know, Alexis and I have been friends through the convention scene for a while. And I was like, what do you want to draw? What's the thing that like has always been on your horizon that never seems to approach closer? And he was like, oh, I want to do cyborgs. I want to do like a cyberpunk cyborg comic about cops in Venezuela. And I was like, interesting. 
I have no idea what that means. Okay. Hmm. What do we, what do I do with that? All right. Okay. All right. Okay. So then, you know, I started thinking about it and I was like, you know, Alexis wants to draw cool guns, chrome, bulletproof vests, cool masks. What can I do with those things? And I was like, my initial trepidation was like, I don't want to make a copaganda comic. Like, fuck that. So then I was like, oh, what if we made a comic about cops where it was very apparent that everything they were doing was corrupt and wrong. And, but the characters don't know that, but we know that. And so that kind of led us down this path of like, let's make a Paul Verhoeven, 80s, 2000 AD, Pat Mills, John Wagner, Philip K. Dick comic set in Venezuela, 100 years in the future. After, and then I came up with this idea of like, oh, maybe there's this law where if you want to own public property run for public office or have a child in a hospital, you have to be a police officer. Like it is a police state beyond, you know, one step beyond what anyone could ever imagine. Um, And Alexis liked the idea. He was like, oh yeah, man, that sounds really cool. Like we could do like really weird kind of 2000 AD like propaganda posters everywhere. And Mm -hmm. I was like, fuck yeah, let's do it. So I wrote the first issue. We did a Kickstarter. It raised like 22 grand or something like that. And then we paired up with Floating World. Jason over at Floating World helped us uh, distribute to the direct market and publish the book. And um, it was really created as a direct reflection of Alexis's style of like, how can we make this gritty, stylish, neon, Tijuana Bible Jack Kirby punk comic that almost would feel like something that you know, like I said, that that Pat Mills and Kevin O'Neill would have made if Pat Mills and Kevin O'Neill were Venezuelan. Um, <laughs> obviously, I'm not Venezuelan, but uh, Alexis is, and it means a lot to him. And, you know, he always says, like, it's so stupid that it's always just white people in space, which is why he wanted to make space writers. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this was kind of the same thing where it's like cyberpunk always ever happens in Tokyo, L.A. or New York. So this was that's true. Taking those genre conventions and then filtering them through, literally, Alexis's hometown. If anything I've done has struck a chord with people, I think it's because hopefully I'm a I'm a fan of the medium. I'm a an illustrator too. I'm a cartoonist, and I know that I've drawn scripts that were obviously not fucking intended for me, and it sucks. It's just a drag. You don't want to do it, and you can see that in the lines on the paper. And so finding those absolutely those pockets of whatever the illustrator is interested in is the goal, right? Like the same thing with Everyone is Tulip, my Dark Horse book with Nicole Gu was like, what are you interested in? What are you vibing on? What are you excited about? And she was really into these kind of performance artists that were coming out on YouTube at the time. And we were talking about that and like, what does that mean for our culture that our digital presences have now evolved to be their own characters? What does it mean that you know, these people have these tumultuous behind the scenes lives that are um, not reflected in their digital persona. You know, what does it mean that we're all performing all the time for each other online, even when we seem like we're not? Um, and those were all things that she was very interested in. And she was, you know, excited about that. And I, I think, you know, we developed the book together. We co-created it together. And it, it I think it really feels noticeable. You know, when you look at that book, it is so apparent that we both really give a shit yeah that's actually uh, the, the perfect word that it was coming to my mind with both the creations from alexis and goo 
is authenticity. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like you're just turning that out to make a buck. It reads and looks as though you actually gave a shit about what you were putting down on paper. Well, I think part of that too is because like, there's no fucking money in comics. So why would you, <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> why would you spend all this time and effort and energy? Like, you know, we worked on Everyone is Tulip for like probably four and a half years. And a solid year of that was me pitching it around, trying to get it picked up. And like, mm-hmm. Which is, is not an easy thing to do. No, it's it fucking sucks, bro. Like it really <laughs> sucks. And you know, the the that process is it takes so much time and effort and sweat and quite frankly thick skin. It yeah, it takes really thick skin and I yeah, I don't know. Maybe there'll maybe there will be a day when I have like a really expensive mortgage and I, I got to phone in nine Spidermans or something. I don't know. But right now, hey, like, or you could be the guy that creates the next something is killing the children. Yeah. Who yeah. Knows? I mean, like my, yeah, my goal is that I make books that reflect who I am at that moment in time so that I can give them to people as a, a record of, of what it is to be a flawed, fucked up, weirdo you know like i i don't i don't i don't really have aspirations above that um my aspirations are purely to create books that reflect the world around me and that are autobiographical and i know that that is somewhat strange considering i just said i made a comic about a fucking nine foot tall cyborg cop and uh you know a a five foot two blonde internet performance artist but i really do feel that they both are deeply autobiographical and you can feel those metaphors in books when people really put their heart and soul into something versus when it is like you're saying you just show up because you have the opportunity and my goal is to never just show up because i got an opportunity like when i when i was offered the the job on on star trek i was like i treated it like i was making a period piece like i i i rewatched a whole bunch of star trek stuff i mean i'm i'm a huge star trek fan anyway like literally right next to me is the Tuvok from Voyager. <laughs> All right. Like I, I, I'm, but I, I treated it like making a documentary where I like, I did a bunch of research. I took notes on all the characters, vocal tics. I mm-hmm. incorporated those into the book. I, I asked myself questions that like, what are the things that I've always wondered about Tuvok and Janeway's relationship? How can that factor in here? And like in the first issue, there's an episode where, um, in between the third and fourth season, uh, they cut Janeway's hair. They gave her this kind of bob as opposed to this like weird pompadour thing that she had in the third season. Mm-hmm. And I was like, they never really talk about that hairdo on screen. But like, and partly is because the show was run exclusively by straight white dudes who didn't know what to do with female fashion. They were like, I don't fucking know. So, so like it's never talked about in the show. Um, and not that it needs to be. That's not like a huge thing. Like somebody got a haircut, whoop de doo But for Janeway, being this very kind of rigid, controlled person who has these bouts of um, inertia and, and is caught up in a situation that they can't always um, exercise that control in, that that idea of your hair is now down, it's shorter, it's, it, it, it's a reflection of where the character was at at that point, right? 
Um, even if, if even if it wasn't intentional at the time, it is now. Like the, it can be interpreted that completely, way. completely one hundred percent. So like you know the the issue, the opening of the first issue is Janeway and Tuvok in an elevator talking about her getting a haircut, and it to me it is so fucking funny. Like I don't know if anybody else is gonna give a shit about that, but me <laughs> being like you know she says something about like Tuvok, I. So you haven't commented on my hair. That's probably because it's you view it as a human emotional thing. And he says something <laughs> to the effect of like, you know, uh, you know, I I don't necessarily always take into account uh, people's fashion choices. But yes, you know, if I analyze mathematically the curvature of your face, like this haircut is very visually pleasing. And like that, 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 that little exchange right nice. there is just like. That's what I want, you know. Like I don't. It's it's an onyx expression of the characters, right? And like I personally, you know, the the Star Trek book uh, is drawn by Angel Hernandez and and colored by Rhonda Patterson, and um, I am I'm eternally grateful for both of them being my um, stalwart creative compatriots on the project. But also because it was an IDW thing. I didn't talk to either of them, which is very weird for me because I'm usually like in the weeds trying to figure out what's the best thing to write for the artist. And right. uh, I've still never talked to Angel. I would like to, um, but he doesn't have a Twitter and I can't find his email anywhere. And so I, yeah. <laughs> um, but the book is, I'm very proud of it. And it is exactly what we were discussing here where I, I was like, this literally might be my only shot at this. So I need to swing for the fucking fences. And Absolutely. Did I succeed? I don't know. That's not up to me to, to to delineate. But I can tell you one thing. It is exactly the comic that I wanted to make. That's how you know whether or not you succeeded. Do you feel as though the book you produced is something you can be happy about? Because at the end of the day, that is on. And I'm not just throwing fluff here. That's what really matters. We've lost so much of the artist in comic book presentation. It's been turned out. There's... It, there's still sweatshops today, maybe not literally, but I mean, it, it is just a it's just a nonstop mill producing. And we do lose that that spark of art that that goes into somebody who actually gives a shit about what they're producing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, you know, for better or for worse, I'm not going anywhere. Like, I'm just going to keep doing this weird shit until somebody gives a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you keep calling yourself weird. Myself, my wife, and my two children, we actually go by the moniker Team Weird here. Mm, so, mm. <laughs> and, uh, without a doubt, while I'm reading your books, it, it definitely feels that they're not just written for enjoyment. I get that you're trying to present an accurate representation of yourself, share where we are in the world, and um, it, it does. It feels like you're putting out a message. Now, your latest graphic novel, Everyone is Tulip, really does seem to do just that. I haven't had a chance to read everything that you've written. I did dive quite a bit into it. Yeah. But um, so uh, finally, the reason Dave Baker has decided to grace us with his presence today is to discuss his latest release, Everyone is Tulip. Nicole Gu and Ellie Hall have really brought that story to light on the page uh coloring is a huge thing to me as far as i'm concerned it is just as important as pencils and inks and i think hall did a fantastic job here too however it does take a bit more to produce comics than just pretty art there's currently two huge publishers that are 
battling that issue right now. So what can you tell us about your production of Everyone is Tulip? The story, the inspiration, your journey creating it. Yeah, so the the book is, you know, kind of what I had said earlier. It's about a it's about a young actress who um, moves from Arizona to Los Angeles to try and make it in Hollywood and discovers it's not that easy. And she kind of drifts around for a while working various dead-end jobs until one day she replies to a Craigslist ad that is kind of strange and esoteric and she's not sure what it's for. Ultimately, it turns out it is for a series of YouTube performance art videos uh, where this character, Tulip, uh, looks directly into the camera and just says everyone is Tulip over and over and over again. And every video is her in a different elaborate couture uh, costume, basically, uh, ensemble, whatever. And um, so the book is kind of about this little nucleus of characters who are all attempting with a capital A. You know, they're all trying to um, make it in Hollywood. They're all trying to put their mark on the world in whatever that way is. Um, in know, their own different ways. In their own different ways, yeah. They're all kind of attempting to do different things, but they're all kind of thematically linked, right? They're the idea of, like, being a creative in the early 20th century with or 21st century with... Um, the burdens and pressures of how social media warps reality and how compromise is this never ending thing for any artist and how um, the process of navigating the behind the scenes of these industries constantly moves goalposts where when you get into this, you think you're on this artistic path for a specific reason. And then you look up one morning and you've achieved what you were originally trying to do, but now Everything is just completely different and you have these bizarre no-win scenarios that you're in. Um, And um, yeah, the process of making it was Nicole and I um, had just put out our previous book, Fuck Off Squad, published through Silver Sprocket, which is like a coming-of-age romance comic. And we were trying to figure out what our next thing was going to be. And Nicole was very interested in these types of people like Belle Delphine, Poppy, Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared... Um, right. Dal Vita, all these kind of weird social media influencers who have socio-political commentary happening in their videos that nine times out of ten is pretty pedestrian and just kind of like corporations bad. Yeah. Um, but the, or do you want to buy my bathwater? Come one hundred percent. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm I'm very interested in all of those people, and uh, Nicole and I got very obsessed with the kind of artifice that they were all putting forward and the kind of sleek commerciality that they were all producing from their bedrooms, basically. And so they started with a series of sketches where Nicole was just drawing some of these people being like, yeah, what, 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 what book could we make from this? And, um, you know, we're both really big fans of Satoshi Kon, um, who mm-hmm. made Paprika and Tokyo Godfathers and Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress. And so we were thinking about it like that. Like, what if we made... Millennium Actress or The Neon Demon, you know, by Nicholas Winding Griffin and but made it about the process of existing in an online space. And, um, you know, what compromises do you have to make to continue to exist in that space? Because the Internet evolves so rapidly, like the Internet now versus the Internet when we started is just completely different. And in five years, it'll be completely different again. Absolutely. And a lot of that is based in the need as a society for instant gratification completely it's 
it almost I, I almost feel as though Tulip or I'm calling her Tulip the character's name is actually Becca Harper um, it seems as though that's what she gets caught up in because she's gotten so far into it and it almost feels like she can't back out now because if she backs out she's going to lose everything that she got overnight completely yeah I mean it's that's thematically that is 100% the the idea that the work is interrogating you know this this kind of idea of like sunk cost fallacy but like mm-hmm. on an, an emotional interpersonal level where you're you're so committed to this dream but you've become a completely different person than the person who initially had the dream and how you continue to evolve or devolve depending on your perspective on it um you know uh, i think the book is also very formalist in its concerns of reflecting these themes visually. So there's a lot of kind of cell phone narrative mechanics and um, comics language uh, things that that you can't do in other mediums that hopefully illustrate or emphasize the the feeling of existing online, um, which is was not easy to do but i think the end product came out pretty well i'm, I'm pretty proud of it um mostly because i, I didn't dude, do that's it. exactly <laughs> I, that was all it's the exact feeling that i got from it is i'm i'm literally watching this girl go through all of these all of these scenarios and and you can just you can watch it she seems as though she's still the same girl but at the same time she has completely changed into something different yeah and uh, it's a hell of a ride. It really is for something that isn't action packed. For something that isn't, you know, let's say name brand commercial. It, I was, I was a little iffy. Of course, you always are when you sure. go into an independent book that you're unfamiliar with. Of course. But the moment that I'm telling you, the the OGN the that I got was around 184 pages. I read that all in one sitting. Wow. It was a really, really good story. And I don't offer compliments unless you deserve them. Right. So I think you, Goo, and Hall have brought together an amazing, amazingly packaged product. Thank you. Where where did you get to meet your creative team? Where did you stumble upon yourselves at? Yeah. um, I met Nicole at a gallery show. she she went to Cal State Long Beach, which a bunch of the illustrators that I'm friends with that worked on Action Hospital um, also went there. So we we had all these mutual friends in common. We were at this gallery show and we started chatting and we just kind of instantly clicked of like, oh, like you're really funny. Like we should do something like we, we should make something together. Like you're. It just was kind of emotional kismet, right? Where you were just like, oh, yeah, right. you see the same world that I see, which. Yep, you just clicked. Yeah, totally. It just made sense. Like she, I can I can actually tell you the definitive moment that I was like, oh, this girl, yeah, this is this is we're gonna make some cool stuff. Is we were in the bar after the gallery show, and it was so weird. It was like a a karaoke barbecue restaurant. It was very strange. So there was like <laughs> it was like an old man singing like you know, don't stop believing uh, behind us, and we were as so many illustrators do, you know, as a group of artists. So we were all playing like an exquisite corpse game or something where there was a drawing that we all would just add stuff onto. And Uh um, I drew a guy like kind of flexing his bicep and making a fist. And she took it and put a shake weight 
in the guy's hand. And I was nice. like, this bitch. All right. All right. I see this. I see it. All right. Let's let's be friends. And then from there, we just kind of started making zines and going to conventions and, you know, slowly self-publishing and putting work out and really trying to find avenues to exhibit our, our, our works in. And from there, we had been invited to an art school here in California to do like a talk of like, hey, we're local artists. This is what we're doing. Blah, 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 blah. And at that class, in that comics class, Ellie was a student in that class. And it was kind of the same thing where we kind of hit it off. We all had common interests and her work was really good. And afterwards, she followed us on, I think it was Instagram. She followed us on Instagram and Nicole like immediately texted me. I was like, hey, what do you think about this girl coloring Tulip? What, what, how does that feel? And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, I think I think this could work. And so, you know, they collaborated on the colors and and I think the book really sings because the the combination of the two of them really brings so much of what is in an interior story and a story about choices that aren't like you're saying, like nobody's getting punched. There's no explosions. Right. There's no, there's not even like a car chase. I don't even think there's vehicles. I think everything is on foot. I think there might be one. Oh, no. You know what there is? There's there's one car scene where it's so fucked up. After the videos have gotten uh, p- popular, Becca has sex with the director of one of the videos in a car, and he makes her recite the catchphrase from the videos while they're having sex. That's yeah. right. I forgot. He says, say it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> say it. Yeah, um, which is like so Very dark. spot on. Yeah, it's so dark. Like, it is so dark. <laughs> It is dark, but it felt real. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's the the balancing act with the book for me is like finding those moments that are just like crushingly sad, but just there's no other version of that scene that could work. Like it's it's almost like you set up the happy stuff, the sad stuff, the in-between stuff that's all leading towards, you know, the undeniable but unexpected conclusion of where it's going to lead. Because you don't want something to, you want something to feel inevitable and yet surprising at the same time. Um, you know, inevitable and unexpected, maybe. So that's, that's the goal. That was the goal of the book is like just to continue to ride that line of inevitable but unexpected ways of everything being depressing as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Accurate. Uh, hey, um, let me ask you this. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your Deep Cuts podcast or your YouTube shorts? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I host a, a deep dive explainer podcast with my friend Andrew Price. It's called Deep Cuts. You know, it's kind of for people who like weird or obscure stuff. Um, the like slogan for the top of the show that we say it on every episode is, you know, Deep Cuts is a podcast where we pick a topic and then walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty so that you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, it's a lot of weird kind of, you know, uh, we we did an episode all about Napster, the file sharing service, service from the 2000s that like basically brought the music industry to its knees. But we did it not just as a typical explainer. We did it as a two-hour musical with 11 original songs that both Andrew oh and I sing together. Um we did That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm very proud of it. Um we we did an episode about Buckaroo Banzai, which is like my favorite movie of all time, and <laughs> we we got Earl Mac Roush and W. D. Richter 
the writer and director of the original film, to create a 10-minute radio play at the end of the episode. And we got uh, Pepe Serna and Billy Vera, two actors from the, to, from the nice. movie, to appear in the, 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 the radio play sequence. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's a lot of weird stuff like fucking, uh, did you know Andrew W.K. is a fictional character? That's an episode. <laughs> uh, we just did an episode about, like, this weird, uh, I feel like I'm saying weird so many times. Now that you've pointed it out, I'm like, ah, I gotta, gotta use a different synonym. Jesus, I say weird so much. <laughs> ah, no, you're good. <laughs> we did an episode about this guy uh, named George Van Tassel, who was kind of the preeminent person in the 1950s on like the cutting edge of the UFO movement. And um, mm-hmm. he had an airport out in Giant Rock, California, that he claimed uh, aliens visited multiple times. And uh, his conspiracy theories about alien contactees and missing time and uh, anal probes, like all of those ideas filtered out into the common vernacular of what we expect alien abductions to be and eventually the character that he claimed he was psychically communicating with ashtar spawned a real religion called the ashtar galactic command um so we just recently did (laughs) that episode so if you're into aliens cult movies or musicals will probably like the show. I really need to figure out why the hell Andrew WK is a fictional character. Just saying, there's a there's a <laughs> there's a two and a half hour episode about it. And in fact, uh, a couple of days ago, he tweeted at us saying, "Like, I'm not fictional. This is so bullshit. I'm a real person." <laughs> it's very, it's very, it was very good. It was charming. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing that you uh, that you can appreciate more than than feedback from the people that you're talking about targeting as yeah. a podcast myself that does nothing but review i found joy in knowing that artists that are up and coming uh like rom v for example when he put out blue and green i know a lot of people complained about how slow and crawling that was but because i'm into the whole blues and the old legends of blues uh area and bluegrass um i was immediately into it and promoting that for him and then seeing him liking it and retweeting it on Twitter and commenting and whatnot. I'm glad that we're able to help an artist. Um, you know, obviously he's gone places. We want to be able to help artists like that, enjoy themselves, know that there's people out there that support them and, 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 and help do just that. And then we've also got artists who will, I say artists unilaterally writers. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 But like uh, Tony Orlando, for example, uh, I consistently pick on his uh, on on his titles, and he, me and him will sit there and bullshit back and forth in direct messages because he knows that it's just me doing a job, and he I can see things going on. Uh, he's made such improvement from the offerings that he has at DC, and it's carried over into his Commanders in Crisis line. For example, what what do you see as being your next? project do you have another passion project that you've got in mind that you're going to be tackling after the success of tulip yeah um well i appreciate you saying it's a success here's hoping that it is very commercially successful and there's billions of dollars that are made off it and it's uh just a juggernaut and and i get tired of talking about it and then that's it i don't know (laughs) I don't know. I'm fucking around. Uh, So I've got a couple things. Uh, I've got a graphic novel that I wrote, Andrew, that is tentatively signed up to a publisher. We're kind of working that stuff out right now. Um, I've got another book signed to Dark Horse. 
And I've got a book coming out next summer from Simon & Schuster uh, through their Athenaeum imprint, also with Nicole Gu, called the Forest Hills Bootleg Society. It's a coming-of-age story about um, four teenage girls in a conservative Christian boarding school in middle of nowhere, California, who start a hentai distribution ring to all of their male <laughs> studio students. Yeah. Oh, yes. Wow, your topics and your story direction... They're not like much else I've seen that is out there. I'll take it, man. I'll take it. Yeah. You should. It's 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 an amazing thing to be able to say that you're offering something original. Like Paradox XL says inside of your book, all art is stolen. And I still believe that that's not exactly the case. Sure. It's yeah. reproduced. It's reinterpreted. A lot of the times it is stolen. But every once in a while, you happen to stumble across a gem. And I happen to think that Everyone is Tulip is one of those gems. Thank you. No, thank you for coming on here. So there you guys have it, everyone, in an interview with the one and only Dave Baker. Dave, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you here with me today. You guys can find Dave on Twitter at xdavebark. Excuse me, at X Dave Baker X. I've been listening to Travis Barker. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you can get access to everything Dave Baker at heydavebaker.com. That's H E Y for those that cannot spell for patches that say Bob Kane lied to individually signed copies of the Star Trek series that he had mentioned before and all kinds of other things. If you head on over there, you can purchase directly from the website. So that's directly from the creator. Don't forget that you can get everything Not A Robot at notarobotpodcast.com. And with that, there is only one way we can say goodbye around here. Be good to yourself, be good to each other, and don't be a robot. <laughs> I, I got to ask you, and I probably should have done that during the recording. Um, are, are you like a big anti-Bob King guy? Oh, yeah. Fuck that dude. Okay, okay. I am so, I hate him so much. I'm like, yeah, fuck that dude.